thank you for the grace that you poured into our lives, Lord, opening our eyes to see the glory of the Christ as our great and risen Savior. And Lord, we thank you that we have a great treasure in you, Lord, that we could sell everything we have and pursue you with our entire lives. We would not be found wanting or poor or destitute because we have what truly matters. We have Christ Jesus, Lord. So I pray that you would prick our hearts, pierce our hearts today, Lord. Set our affections and our minds um, in your way, God, so we would bless you with our lives. Lord, for we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray for this time in Christ's name. honest, it was hard for me not to run up here because I'm excited. Um, and one other thing to tell you, um, I'm not a genius. I know that surprised one of you. Um, there's one part in the message where I say the Greek says this about a word. I don't know Greek. <laughs> I don't know Hebrew. Um, I rely on the commentaries and the studying um, as I put this together. So um, please pray with me. I want to pray again before I speak. Love you, Lord. There's absolutely no one greater than you. And I need you. Everyone in this room needs you. We need to hear your word, not mine. And I pray that it would affect us to love you more and obey you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your sacrifice. In your name, amen. I think... It'd be safe to say that everybody in this room shares at least one thing in common. Everybody in this room wants to be satisfied. I'd venture to say that there isn't anyone in here that does not want to be satisfied. Satisfaction is something we all long for. We strive after it. We seek it. Satisfaction is something that the Declaration of Independence says that we have the right to. It says that we've been endowed by our Creator with the right to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's numerous ways that we seek to obtain the satisfaction. We play the lottery. We build our retirement. Buy a dream house. We marry that beautiful spouse. Try to be the best that we can at work. We chase our addictions of drugs and pornography. We try to be that person that everyone likes. We study self-help psychology material where we learn how to find our inner self. We give to charities, to the poor. 
We strive and we labor for satisfaction. Satisfaction is something that we all need, and for good reason. You and I have been designed to be satisfied. But there's a problem. No matter how much money we make, or how big a house we have, or how much we've saved up in our retirement, or how much time we spend seeking our addictions, or studying, or seeking self-help wisdom within ourselves, we will never obtain sustained satisfaction in any of those things. King Solomon was a son of King David. We read about him in the Old Testament. He was alive during the 10th century. And King Solomon asked God for a mind to govern his people. He wanted to be able to discern right from wrong. And God was pleased with him for asking this. So God made Solomon the wisest man on earth. And King Solomon helped you and I out tremendously when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the second chapter, he tells us that this wise man decided to set his mind to seek anything that his heart desired. And so he went after anything he wanted. And he tells us he cheered his body with good wine. Solomon went on building sprees. He, he built all these houses, buildings. He planted orchards and vineyards with all different kinds of fruit trees. In fact, he was so wealthy that he also created these huge pools of water that were large enough to water the forests that he had planted. He had um, male and female servants, tons of them to serve him. He was rich. He had tons of gold, tons of silver, and he obtained this from all the provinces around him. In fact, the Bible says that in the days of Solomon, his kingdom was so wealthy that silver was as common as the stones on the ground. He had men and women entertainers, his own personal ones. If it were me, I'd probably have Lecrae or Garth Brooks or Levi in my backyard singing to me whenever I wanted. For those of us who think we would desire to have as many women as we want in our lives, King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The Muslims sold themselves short in the eyes of Solomon. As mentioned in 1 Kings, Solomon's army was far superior than any other army in the whole world. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Solomon indulged himself with anything that he wanted. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be as wealthy as King Solomon? He was definitely far richer and more powerful than in the, the largest jackpot lottery winner in history. So what did this wise king conclude after he indulged himself in everything? He tells us in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We all long for satisfaction in different ways, and we can learn from the second wisest man ever to walk the earth. He had it all, and he said it was all vanity. A striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun, i.e. on earth. There's nothing to be gained here on earth. Why? Because as long as we seek our satisfaction in the creation, 
rather than the Creator, will ultimately be unsatisfied. You and I have been made to seek satisfaction, happiness, and joy, but not in ourselves, not in this world. True satisfaction, sustained satisfaction, could only come from the source of goodness and love, which is Jesus Christ. Solomon had everything, and he was unsatisfied. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he concluded, and he, his advice to us was to fear God. Solomon found his satisfaction in God. How do we find our satisfaction in God? The Apostle Paul is going to tell us. I am, I'm really excited about this passage. I already mentioned that earlier. Because we're going to go into the book of Philippians. Philippians is one of my favorite books, and these verses are some of my favorite verses because I think that they're going to show us what drove Paul in his ministry, in his love for Christ, and then obviously in turn, it's what gives us our drive, our love for Christ, and shows us the benefit we have and our motivation to live for Jesus. The Apostle Paul was alive during the first century after Jesus' death and resurrection. Before he became a Christian, his name was Saul. And he was a Greek-speaking Jewish religious leader who grew up in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee, someone who ascribed to strict orthodoxy and formalism of the Jewish faith. He thought that Christians were evil, so he went around persecuting them. One day, he's on the road to Damascus, and God confronts him. Says to him, why are you persecuting me? God continues, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Saul submitted, became a Christian. His name was changed to Paul. Now instead of going around persecuting Christians, he went all over the place telling people the gospel message, the name of Jesus. In fact, it says through the mid-30s through the 50s, Paul was responsible for traveling all over Asia Minor, into Europe, and the Roman Empire. And then God used him to write at least 13 books in the New Testament. And during Paul's ministry, he experienced a tremendous amount of suffering, tribulation, that he went through for preaching the name of Jesus. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, that Paul said he experienced, quote, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the, at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered throughout his whole ministry. And then at the end of the book of Philippians, he tells us this, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. Really? <laughs> really, Paul? How can you say that? Throughout your whole ministry, you went through all this different stuff. 
and you are able to be content. Paul is going to tell you and I how to obtain sustained satisfaction and joy in his letter to the church of Philippi. Paul founded the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. Twelve years after he founded this church, he was thrown in prison in Rome. So Paul is in Rome, sitting there in prison. The church in Philippi hears that Paul is in Rome, in prison, and they send, I'm going to butcher his name, Epaphroditus, a guy from their church, to give gifts to Paul and to encourage him. So Epaphroditus journeys over to Rome, tells Paul what's going on, gives him gifts. Paul's encouraged by the gifts, but then Paul's also discouraged because he hears that the church in Philippi, is also being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, which he he knows that, but he's also concerned because the people there are concerned for him. The church over in Philippi isn't only being persecuted themselves, but now they hear that the person that started their church is in jail, is in prison. They don't know what's going to happen to them. So Paul sees what's going on with the people, and he responds with encouragement. He tells us in Philippians 1, 12 through 13, that his imprisonment has really happened to advance the gospel. He encouraged them by saying, don't worry, God put me here in prison. I am here, and I'm appointed to be here by God, so that I can tell everyone about Jesus. And he goes on to tell them, not only have I been able to tell other prisoners about Jesus, but... The name of Jesus, the gospel message, has traveled throughout the whole imperial guard. He didn't wallow in his sufferings. He didn't worry about what was going on. He's telling people, don't worry. What's most important to me is that the name of Jesus be proclaimed, and that's what's going on. That's what's important for us to see here, is that Paul's main concern is that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that, will not, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Well, there it is. In that passage that I just read is the drive for Paul's ministry, the drive for our ministry. The key to Paul's contentment, the key to his satisfaction, the key to our contentment, and the key to our satisfaction. Now, I'm going to try to unpack this passage a little bit. I'm going to jump around. 
Stay with me, please. First of all, we want to remember what's going on here. Paul is writing this as a letter of encouragement to a church that's distressed in Philippi. Once again, what is Paul's focus in all that's happening? Jesus is always the answer. He gives his answer in the first line of 18. Paul wants Christ to be proclaimed. Paul's only concern is that Jesus would be glorified by the preaching of the gospel. Paul says twice in verse 18 that he rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed in every way. That's really important for us to see, that Paul is receiving joy from preaching the gospel message. Let's look on to verses 20 and 21. They read, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is Paul's eager expectation and hope? That Christ would be honored in his body by life or by death. What does Paul mean by honored? Some translations say honored, some say magnified. The Greek translation for the word honored helped me out tremendously. It means literally to cause God to be seen as great. So let's substitute that translation and reread this verse. It would read, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be caused to be seen as great in my body, whether by life or by death. For Paul to magnify God, for Paul to honor God, was to, for him to live in such a way that caused God to be seen as great. For you and I to honor God or magnify God is to live in such a way that causes God to be seen as great. At the end of verse 20, Paul says, whether by life or by death. So, Paul wants Christ to be seen as great. He wants him to be honored, magnified in his life and in his death. Let's move on to verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, it's important for us to see the connection between verse 20 and verse 21. We have a word life in 20, word live in 21. The word death in 20, the word die in 21. They're interchangeable. Okay. I'm just trying to create a clear picture is what, what's going on here. So we'd be correct in reading verse 21. For me, life is Christ, and death is gain. So what does Paul mean when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain? Once we understand what they mean, then we can figure out why it's good news for us. What does Paul mean when he says, for me to live as Christ? We already answered part of it. Part of the answer is to, to live for Christ is to live in such a way that causes Christ to be seen as great. We get the second half of what Paul's talking about if we continue reading. Paul says that if he's to continue living 
it would be fruitful labor for him. What does he mean by fruitful labor? Continue reading. Paul says in verse 24 that his living would be more beneficial for the church. And then he continues to define why the church benefits from his fruitful labor in verse 25. He says, quote, for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul is working really hard to travel everywhere, proclaim the gospel message, to tell people about Jesus so that people would hear the message, come to faith, and then receive joy in the message. All right. So, there's an awesome circular picture that's going on here. We read earlier that Paul is receiving joy from preaching the message of Christ. And then now we read that as he preaches the message of Christ, other people hear it, then they come to faith in Jesus, and they also receive joy. So there's a circular thing going on here. Everyone is receiving joy in the message of Jesus. Okay. So what kind of joy is it that people are receiving? It says joy in the faith. Right? Joy in in causing God to be seen as great. Joy in glorifying God. That's where real joy comes from. Glorifying God. Real joy is a satisfaction in Jesus. It's a peace and a contentment that can only be explained in knowing our Creator, in knowing Jesus. Real joy isn't the excitement in buying a new car or a house or anything else in this world. Real joy only comes from our Creator. Now, in order to get the full picture, we need to understand what he means by the word gain in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean? He gives an awesome, clear picture in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's about the most straightforward that Paul could be and what he means by the word gain. What Paul is saying here is, <clears throat> though I die and lose everything, and I gain Christ, and I'm with Him, it is gain. Though you and I die, and lose our family for a short time, and lose our house, and lose our car, and lose our, our job if we like it, or our friends, or whatever hobbies we have, though we lose everything in this world that we love, and we go to heaven, and we're with Jesus, it is Gain. It's the best message in the world. There's nothing greater than Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, you might make the observation, doesn't Paul already have Jesus in his life? 
He's a Christian. That's true. So Paul's already gained. So we live in Christ, we gain. We die, we gain even more. Why? Because right now, when we have Jesus in our lives, we're looking at Jesus through tainted eyes, in a sense. We're sinners. We're still struggling in the flesh. We're going through sanctification. We're going through the process of being made holy. And when we die, we're going to see Jesus without that. Our pain is gone. Suffering is gone. Struggle with sin is gone. And you get to look at your Savior, the one who created you, and said, come to me, I love you. And you get to embrace him and hold on to him. And it's going to be great. It's going to be gain, though everything else is gone. There's no better news than that. So, as we continue to live our lives in such a way that causes Christ to be seen as great, we glorify Him. God receives the glory. We receive the satisfaction. There's no limit. More and more satisfaction, He gets more and more glory. It's what we've been designed for. We don't live that way. We're not living for what we've been made for. We've been made to honor and worship our Creator. And it's a good thing because we get joy from it. That's why it's loving for Him to receive glory. How do we apply this message to our lives? You have to know Jesus. If that's you, you don't know Jesus. That's where you need to start. read the Bible, it doesn't make any sense. He's not in you. You don't know him. You just look like black words on a white page. Probably whatever I'm saying doesn't make any sense. You need to come before him and admit you're imperfect. You're a sinner. And Jesus, who's God, who made you, loves you, and he's offering you a free gift that you can't earn. It's called his love, it's called satisfaction, it's called salvation. And he wants you to admit to him, it could be in your heart, it could be with your mouth outward, it could be praying with someone else, it doesn't matter, it's between you and God. You need to tell him, God, I am a sinner, and I want you in my life. I believe that you're God, and I believe that you died, and you rose from the dead. So, I didn't want to leave that part out. That's the most important thing. None of this is going to make any sense unless you know Jesus. For those of us who know Jesus, we can understand where Paul's coming from when he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We've experienced it. We've experienced the joy and the peace that comes from knowing Christ. But we also know what it's like to chase after everything we want and try to have it all like King Solomon. I know I do. (laughs) It's a constant struggle in my life. I hate it. Therefore, in order for us to apply this message to our lives, we need to live in such a way that causes Christ to be seen as great, which means we live our lives in such a way to reflect our love for Christ. Since becoming Christians, has there been a change in our goals, the way that we live? Does the way that we live indicate that Christ 
is what's most important to us. Do we make our decisions based on what God's telling us to do? Maybe someone out here is looking for a job right now. Maybe you have a couple in mind. One pays more, one pays less. But for whatever reason, God seems to be leading you towards the one that pays less. Are you going to listen to God and ultimately be more satisfied because you're obeying Him and glorifying Him? How about our speech? Does the words that are coming out of our mouth reflect someone that loves Jesus? Are we slandering people? Are we constantly complaining? Are we building up our wives or our husbands? Do we have children when we're speaking to them? Do they see Jesus in us? Are our words directing their hearts and their minds to the source of the love that is coming from our mouths? Husbands, do we love our wives as Christ loved the church? Meaning we're dying to ourselves and we're serving her. Wives, are you respecting your husbands? What are we doing with our free time? Is all of our downtime spent watching TV? And we never seem to have time to spend time with God and reading scripture, which is life, and praying. Or do we go visit our neighbors next door? Do you know anyone that doesn't know Jesus? We just read here, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. You believe this message? You believe the Bible? You believe that the words will save them? You're going to love them? Speak the truth to them so that they can come to faith. So that you can... Receive joy from telling them, then they can come to faith, and then they can receive joy and glorify God and go out and tell other people. Living for Christ is a definite gain, but living for ourselves is a definite loss. I would like to conclude with a video clip of Pastor John Piper speaking at the Passion Festival. Um, This was a few years ago. in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic 
simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference. Because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell, and that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Elias, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards medical doctor in the Twin Cities and then in retirement partnering up with Ruby also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon and the brakes give way over a cliff they go and they're dead instantly and I asked my people is this a tragedy Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places, and 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who 
does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, Look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. That clip a lot of times. And um, it's powerful and convicting every time I see it. It also excites me. Um, I often chase after my shell collection. And it is horrible. This video clip we just watched um, isn't just a caution for us to avoid the American dream. Okay. As John Piper said, it's a pleading for us to avoid a tragedy. The tragedy that we need to avoid is a wasted life. It should be an easy sell for me this morning, right, to ask you to avoid a tragedy and to gain life in Christ. Nobody wants tragedy. Everybody wants life. So what do we have to lose? We can lose a fulfilled life. We can miss the very purpose that we've been put here on this earth. We can chase after our shells, obtain more shells than we could have ever imagined that we would obtain, and be ultimately unsatisfied. So my, my plea for us this morning 
is not to chase after the show. It's a plea to live for Christ. Can you imagine the impact that we would have in our community around us, in, in our own lives, if we actually believed this message and lived it? Before we have communion, I just ask you to pray with me once more. Father God, I pray that we never take your word lightly. You say that you've come, that we may have life and have it to the fullest. Help that word to take root in our lives, cause the seed to grow. I pray that there would be fruit, be glorified in our lives. God, prepare our hearts right now as we come before you with communion. And please, God, if there is someone here that doesn't know you, would you bring them to a relationship with you? Thank you so much for your patience and your love and your free gift. In your name. for words. <laughs> what more can I say than what Paul writes in Philippians, the second chapter, starting with the fifth verse? As he speaks to those there, those along with us, have this mind among yourselves, which is which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And to his glory, we, as Christians, as we come to know him as Lord and Savior, follow his words, his teachings. Each Lord's Day, we gather around his table, the bread that represents his body, the cup, the fruit of the vine that represents his blood that we partake of in remembrance of him. And in so doing, we bring him honor and glory. We ourselves are a little more satisfied.
As the ushers come forward in the worship team and the emblems are passed, I ask that you hang on to the emblems to partake of together in unison. <laughs> 